0: Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast. Each episode, I have poignant conversations with women who fly, run, surf, ski, climb, or otherwise soar, and possess a passion for life that is infectious. These are honest and insightful conversations about dreams and reinvention, often in the face of uncertainty, doubt, or other impediments. We talk about busting paradigms, grit, working hard and playing hard, all while building a community around the empowering metaphor of flight. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, mother, skier, list maker, and apparently podcaster. I believe that when we share our stories, own our fears, and dismantle our perceived limitations, the possibilities are boundless. Whether you're pursuing your passion or simply love the idea of possibility and wonder, this podcast is for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started. Our guest today is Nikki Stone. She competed in the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan, and is best known for being the first American to win a gold medal as inverted aerial skier. Aerial skiing is a sport where athletes ski into a 10 to 12 foot snow jump at approximately 40 miles per hour, flip and or twist to a height of more than 50 feet and land on a 45 degree hill. What made this performance so unbelievable was the fact that less than two years earlier, a chronic spinal injury prevented her from standing, much less walking or skiing, off a 12-foot-tall snow jump. She was launched 50 feet in the air and landed this successfully with a gold medal. She overcame the injury and went on to earn 35 World Cup medals, 11 World Cup titles, 4 national titles, 2 aerial World Cup titles, and a world championship title. At the 2002 Olympics, she carried the Olympic torch off the plane that had brought it to the US from Greece. And she was inducted into the National Ski Hall of Fame in 2003. Her aerial retirement was less than restful as she trained Olympic athletes and business professionals in speaking media skills, coached personal and professional development courses, hosted group skiing adventures, wrote articles and columns for a number of magazines, newspapers, and websites and in 2010 authored her first book, When Turtles Fly, Secrets of Successful People Who Know How to Stick Their Necks Out. Nikki's career focus now is on working as a sought-after motivational speaker, sharing her secrets to success by inspiring her audience to stick their necks out. She speaks to me today from her home in Park City, Utah, where she, her husband, and two children call home. You will find this conversation about performance, mindset, mental health, Super Bowls, motherhood and pivoting in the era of COVID insightful and inspiring. Welcome to the podcast and I really can't wait to dive into your story and hear some of your insights. You are best known for being the first American to win a gold medal as the inverted aerial skier. Do you have a memory or a specific moment in your life that was really impactful when you realized aerial skiing was what you wanted to focus on?
1: I actually didn't decide to pursue aerials until I was 18 years old, but I did grow up as a little gymnast and a little skier. And when I was about five years old, I remember seeing Nadia Komenich score a perfect 10, her uneven bar gymnastics routine. I ran into my living room and I made my own podium out of tables and chairs. I remember standing on top and telling my parents I wanted to win the Olympics someday. It's something that in that moment, you know, a parent can tell you that it's something that's really a far reach or they can say, that's not likely. But my parents never told me that. They let me understand that I could achieve whatever I wanted to if I set my mind to it.
0: And the the seed was sown at that point for you in, in this sport specifically?
1: That was in gymnastics at the time. And I didn't start aerials until I was 18. And, you know, when I was 18 years old, I just wanted to start the sport because it was fun. I enjoyed it. And I think it's so important to have passion in whatever you're doing, because if you don't have that passion on those hard days or, you know, when you have adversities in front of you, you're going to want to give up. It's the thing that keeps you going because not every day is an Olympics with gold medals um, at hand. Uh, You know, you have (laughs) to get through those hard days. That means loving what you do.
0: So describe the sport. What does it look like?
1: Well, if you can imagine, you're on skis going down a steep slope at 65 kilometers per hour into a 12-foot tall wall that's at a 70-degree steep angle and sends you flipping and twisting 50 feet in the air and you landing on a steep 45-degree steep hill. And you're hopefully skiing away once you get to the bottom.
0: And what were some of your uh, your challenges? I've heard you say how heights were actually an obstacle for you as far as being fear, having fear of heights.
1: Yeah, I, I was always scared of heights. And I always say that I wouldn't be able to be a Nordic jumper or the people that lean out over their toes and watch the ground the entire time. But with aerials, we're just picking up glimpses of it. And, you know, I, I was terrified. It wasn't something that you can say, oh, you just didn't have fear because I certainly did. Mm -hmm. So much to the point that when I did triple backflips, where we're going 50 feet in the air, flipping over three times in the air, I would go in the woods and lose my lunch um, right before I had to do Mm. it every single day that I was going through practices or competitions because I was so scared of doing this trick. But I wanted a gold medal that badly.
0: Wow. How did you shift your mindset to move through that fear? Obviously, you couldn't get rid of it, the fear.
1: There's something that I've always embraced you know challenges or risks. And one thing that helped me was a quote by my grandmother that said, the brave do not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. And it was a quote I always loved because I realized if you really want to live in life, if you want to go away knowing you've given it your all, to not have any regrets, you really have to take that chance to go out there and live, to do something spectacular. And it was that quote that always helped push me, remind me that you'd rather leave this earth knowing that you gave your all rather than dying with regrets at the end of it.
0: Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Tell us more about 1998 and your journey getting to the Olympics in Nagano.
1: Well, it actually started a couple of years before that. I went to my first Olympic Games in 1994 and didn't do as well as I would like I learned a great deal about focus, commitment going into the next few years, and I became world champion. I won the year-long tour. I won numerous World Cups. The one thing that prevented me just two years before the Olympic Games is that I had a spinal injury where 10 doctors told me I was never going to ski again. Through this injury, I thought it was a muscle spasm as I was training for one of the last competitions in 1996. I found that I couldn't move my back more than two inches in any direction in the middle of a practice for a competition. Hmm. And I went home and saw these doctors that told me I had to quit the sport. And there was something that was always pushing me. I didn't want to be taken out of the sport. I wanted to be at the place where I was satisfied with giving it my all and be ready to go at that point. And so I continued to look for doctors and I finally found a doctor that told me I could come back from the injury, but it was going to be an enormous risk and it was going to be incredibly painful because I injured two of the discs in my back and through these discs, they don't repair themselves. It's just something that I had to learn to build up the muscles in my back to support these injured discs. (laughs) And so to build up these muscles, I had to lift heavy weights and through lifting these heavy weights. I could have the support I needed in order to come back to the sport. And it was, it was excruciatingly painful. But I was at a point where I could not go beyond my bedroom every day. I couldn't sit for more than half an hour, stand more than 15 minutes. And so it was a lot of grit that I had to put in in order to come back from this injury. Mm-hmm. But I found that it was well worth it because I, I don't think any great accomplishment comes without putting some, You know, kind of hard work or overcoming adversity. You know, feeling like you like you dedicated yourself to it. And so, in 1998, I was able to start jumping again. You know, maybe 12 months before the Olympic Games, and I had to come back, learn to do new tricks. Um, I hadn't done a triple before that year, and so I had to come back from this injury and learn new tricks, go higher in the air, land with more impact. You know, and I was scared. (laughs) So it was an enormous toll, but it all paid off when I had that medal draped around my neck because I knew that I'd sacrificed everything I needed to. It's All well, the blood, sweat, and tears were worth it for that moment, standing there on the podium, listening to my national anthem play.
0: Mm. And tell us more about the actual jump, it could, because it's pretty extraordinary.
1: Yeah, so there's two different jumps I had to do. In qualifying, I actually touched a hand on my first jump, which is a double flip with three revolutions around, three rotations. I touched my hand on the ground because I was so nervous of hitting back that I I wanted to be cautious and put my hand down. And there was only 12 people that qualify for finals and I was sitting in 12th place. Hmm. And so on my second jump, I knew I had to go do something big if I was even going to qualify. And I could have done an easier jump to get myself into finals, but I knew in order to do something that was going to put me in a place where I was going for the gold medal, I had to do my triple backflip. And at that point, I'd probably only landed about 15 to 20% of them. Hmm. And so I knew it was an enormous risk. But if there was going to be a time that you took a risk in life, it was when you're going for an Olympic gold medal. Mm -hmm. And so I took the risk and went for the, the trick. And I landed it and found myself in my first ever Olympic finals. And on the day of finals, the wind was gusting up to 50 miles an hour. And that's the last thing you want to be thinking about when you're 50 feet in the air. And so a lot of the women had backed down on their degree of difficulty, the, the difficulty of the tricks that they were doing. And I had trained in the wind before. I had actually knew that we could have any conditions at the Olympic Games. And instead of saving myself for the Olympics, I trained it going into the Olympics, knowing that I had to be prepared for any adversity. That was going to present itself. Mm -hmm. And so I performed my first trick, the double backflip with the triple twist. And I landed it and I found I was in first place after that first round. And I knew I couldn't be thinking about the gold medal at that point because that was one of the challenges I had at my first Olympic Games. I was first after the first round and I started thinking about winning. I started thinking about being on Wheaties boxes and parades they'd have for me. And got distracted and you know lost my focus because of applause and praise that I would get afterwards. And so I went back to the top of the hill and just thought about my jump. I focused on the elements that I would need in order to perform well, my takeoff, what I was doing with my body in the air, how I would perform this trick, the landings. And the wind had started gusting so strongly at that point that my coach had to put his arms up in a cross saying, the jumps are closed until we had a lull in the wind. And so I had to stand there for uh, literally three minutes and wait for the wind to die down. And three minutes may not seem like a long time if you're getting a massage or hitting the snooze alarm. Right. But when you're waiting to see if your life is going to change, it feels like an eternity. Wow. And I had to keep thinking about what I was going to do in the air. So I just kept going over and over and over again in my mind, the actual procedure for the jumps that I was going to do. And he finally gave me a clear sign, meaning that there's a lull in the wind and I couldn't pause and think about it. I had to make sure that I was getting that lull. And so I pushed off to go into this jump and um, I was too slow on my two speed checks in between my two jumps. You know, we test our speed and we want to be on to the kilometer per hour. And I found that I'd gone so fast into this jump and it launched me so high in the air that on impact, my knees accordioned into my chest and I had, you know, this great force coming down like a a grand piano was landing on my shoulder. And I had to push the grand piano off, use the strength of my legs and injured back to stand back up and ski down the hill. And in that moment, I knew that I had done everything I set out there to do. No matter what the scoreboard said, I knew in that moment that I had accomplished my goal by achieving everything I set out to do that day.
0: Wow. What an incredible story, Nikki. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You've written very articulately about some advice that your mother gave you. Can you share that with us?
1: Yeah, when I was growing up, when I first stood on that little podium that I'd made out of tables and chairs, I and I told my parents I wanted to win the Olympics. They sat me down and said in order to be successful, you have to be like a turtle. And, you know, I was always in the mind that you'd have to be like a tiger or a shark or, you know, something aggressive, you know, really confused by by their comments. And my mom said, in order to be like a turtle, you have to be soft on the inside. You have to have a hard shell and you have to be willing to stick your neck out. And throughout my entire career, I use this in order to have that soft inside of the passion for what I was doing, to have the hard shell in order to commit to what I was doing, to overcome adversities, and then uh, to stick my neck out by taking the risks that I needed and having the confidence in myself in order to go and achieve what I needed within the Olympic Games.
0: And you've put together your first book, When Turtles Fly, Secrets for Successful People Who Know How to Stick Their Necks Out. Tell us more about that and pulling that together?
1: Well, I now work as a motivational speaker. And through my stories, there were so many people that said that they could relate to how they were building up their strong turtle. And they were amazed at how it seemed to relate to no matter what field they were in, but they wanted to be able to share the story with family and friends. And I thought, what a great way in order to be able to share my story by also having contributors from 40 different fields, like people like Tommy Hilfiger, Lester Holt, Dr. Stephen Covey, Sean White, Lindsay Vaughn, you know, the list goes on and all different fields. People would share their stories and relate to me how they became successful and how they used that turtle effect in order to find their success.
0: I picked up the book a short time ago. And one of the most intriguing parts to me is how each one of the people that have submitted to the book have their own version of this similar strategy, but you know, new, unique. And I think that's that's really quite fascinating. I think you did a wonderful job of including these different examples, you know, without trying to sort of create over-reductive similarity between them to between them. But um it was, I really, really enjoyed reading it. And they're are a few coaching takeaways that I wanted to just ask you about because they they might be different than some of the other coaching approaches that at least I've heard. So one, for instance, you say change your routine.
1: When we are looking for our passion, when we want to find something we love, we get so stuck in what we're doing that it becomes mundane. And in order to Reach outside and find something that's going to be exciting again, we have to change things up. You know, if I hadn't done that as a young gymnast, I would never be an aerial skier now. I would have never won the Olympics. Uh, It's sometimes we have to try something a little differently in order to find that passion again, to find ways to excite ourselves, to find what really could be our calling if we don't try it in a different way. And so by changing up what you're stuck with, you'll find that it actually brings back the passion and the enjoyment that you need within your job or career.
0: Hmm, I can really relate to that. Another is connect to childhood dreams.
1: Yeah. So it's often, you know, as children, we find that we have these massive dreams. We believe in absolutely everything. And, you know, as that young five-year-old, I wanted to win the Olympics someday. And as we get older, we kind of become content with what we're living, how we're proceeding. And we don't find that we're going to push ourselves and to dream bigger than what most people tell us is possible. Mm -hmm. My book, I use the quote that more people win the lottery than win the Olympics. Mm. If you were to tell a child, you know, yeah, you're going to go out there and win the Olympics someday, it would seem absurd. But having that dream and having that ability to believe that anything is possible in order to get to that possibility. Mm-hmm. Don't reach for the stars. You're never going to get to the sky. Mm-hmm. So you really have to reach beyond what you think is possible by following those childhood dreams and realize that that you know the world is your oyster as long as you dream for it. And why
0: do you think as we age, we lose that sense of being able to dream in a way that a child does?
1: I think we become tainted by things and people around us. You know, you start realizing that things aren't as easy as we think. We become content. We we settle for what we have. And a lot of times it's easier. It's easier to mm-hmm. just stick with what's going to come routine. You don't have to work as hard, you know, but you also don't have the excitement in life. It's It's very similar to the quote that my grandmother gave me that the mm-hmm. brave do not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. You know, if we if we're not going to be able to push ourselves, we're not going to be able to have that that great great high. I always say that there are two different types of people in this world. There are people who like the merry-go-round, and there are people that like the roller coaster. (laughs) And I think that in life, most people like the merry-go-round, though they think they like the roller coaster, but in reality they're content and okay with going around in a circle and sticking to what feels comfortable. And I am someone in life who actually likes the roller coaster, you know, and it includes lows, mm-hmm. it includes the the points where they're challenging and and uncomfortable and devastating, but at the same time you're never going to get the highs if you don't feel those lows. And it can be something so much more outstanding than sitting on the merry-go-round and going around and around.
0: You think that people, their image of themselves is more of a roller coaster, but in practice, the merry-go-round is so comfortable that the sort of an armchair roller coaster rider... I
1: I think they think they enjoy the highs and lows or they think that they enjoy the exhilaration, but in reality, they're not taking those risks. They're not... Mm -hmm. Pushing themselves in, in order to get to the place where they are feeling those highs and lows. You know, the mm-hmm. highs and lows may happen because, you know, sometimes the, the merry-go-round breaks down. But in reality, they're not doing the things that's actually going to get them on the roller coaster ride.
0: Mm-hmm. The sticking the, your neck out bit. Exactly. Right. This is an, a neat one I'd love to talk to you about. Focus on questions, not answers.
1: You really have to think about all the questions trying to push yourself to to discover more to be curious and you know it's something that i i really admire in my son that he's 9 years old and he he's always thinking about how he can discover more and regardless of where it brings him you can go in circles sometimes when you just look for answers But if you're always exploring and pushing yourself to find out something new, it's really going to help you to understand the world better, to push yourself out of your comfort zone and to try new
0: things. That's a great segue into motherhood. Has motherhood shifted your perspective and does the turtle effect have a place in parenting as well?
1: Most definitely. I think my kids are sick of me talking about the turtle sometimes, (laughs) Um, but I know that they use it um, in their everyday lives. You know, my daughter is a successful dancer and competitive dancer, and she has so many great accomplishments. And as much as she hates, you know, the motivational advice I share with her, I know she values it. I know she utilizes it all the time. Something for me, even raising my children, that I've had to use that turtle. My, My son is a type 1 diabetic. The time when he was diagnosed, I didn't know anything about diabetes. I thought it meant that he couldn't have sugar anymore in his life. And so to understand everything about it and to go through the challenging times of, you know, scary lows where he can almost drop into a coma, Mm -hmm. it's incredibly challenging. And, you know, I have to use that turtle all the time in order to have that hard shell, stick my neck out, make a difference for my kids and see that they're going through and using that turtle in their lives as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It's powerful. I think that um another way that you organized your book was in with a set of core principles around passion, focus, commitment, overcoming adversities, confidence, risk, teamwork, the whole gamut. Yeah. You also mentioned organize, prioritize, stay on track to avoid the downward spirals and I wondered this is sort of a segue into the mental health question that I want to get into with you but this um, book and a lot of your teaching is a roadmap for success, but is it also a roadmap for happiness?
1: Oh, most definitely. I think, I think that is success. I don't necessarily think you have to win a gold medal in order to say you're successful. I think the greatest success is finding happiness in life, um, regardless of what the accomplishment is. And so, for me, I am happier and feel more accomplished with my kids than I do my gold medal. And so a lot of that is is the happiness that they bring to my life. And so it's important to have that mental health, to have the understanding of finding ways in order to bring ourselves happiness. And for some people, it's through accomplishments. And for other people, it's it's through family and, and feeling loved. But we have to find what that thing is that brings us happiness in order to have that type of success.
0: Mm -hmm. In the film, A Weight of Gold with Michael Phelps and the other Team USA athletes, they bring out in the light of day the mental health challenges of high Mm -hmm. performance and Olympic athletes. And it's a powerful, very sad situation. The public persona, identity, the sense of validation through accomplishments and achievements, measures, numbers, medals, it seems to undermine the growth and the healthy sense of self, especially at the young ages that most of these athletes are. How do you see mental health and high performance intersecting in their optimal way?
1: You have to be content and happy with your own accomplishments. Like I said, like after I landed my jump at the Olympics, I was ecstatic no matter if that meant that I was standing on the podium or not. You know, you have to be happy with how you do and I have no control over anyone else. I have no control over what the other women did. I had no control over what the judges thought. I had no control over the weather. And so all I can feel success with is how I actually went about my day and my accomplishments. And you know, for me, it was an enormous accomplishment to be able to come back from an injury when 10 doctors told me it wasn't possible. And I think a lot of that is missed in sports. I think a lot of people focus too much getting the trophy. And and it's why I don't ever agree with everyone gets a trophy. Because I actually learned more and gained more in my bad days, the days that were challenging than I did my good days. Mm -hmm. And so it's all in how you frame it and how you're looking at it. And if you're only there for the medal, you know, I, I won't share any names, but I know there are many top athletes that are only seeking the medal. They're staying in another four years for the next Olympic Games just so they can get that medal. Mm-hmm. And really, you have to love and learn from every single day that gets you to that point. And the me- the medal is, is something that you're, of course, striving for, but you also have to be okay if you don't achieve that.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any advice that you would have given your younger self?
1: I don't know if I would, because I think you have to go through the lessons in order to learn them. Mm-hmm. You know, you can sit there and tell people a certain thing. You know, like I can tell something to my daughter or son as they're going out for a soccer game or a dance competition. But me just talking to them doesn't mean anything unless they they go through it and feel it and understand, you know, the heartache and, and the joy. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know if I would change anything that I did. I don't know if I would give myself any advice except to take it all in, to understand that there's a lesson in everything we learn. And I remember growing up that my parents, you know, I'd have bad days and they'd say, it's really just a day of learning a lesson. You know, like this is a great day that you learn something. And I remember saying to them at one point, I'm sick of learning lessons. I want to win.
0: You want you want to be able to hack that, yeah. right? Do the shortcut, yeah. right? Yeah,
1: and I needed it. I needed those days. Um, you know, I know there's some athletes that that achieve their medal or achieve their success without having that really challenging, difficult road. But I don't think it's as meaningful as someone who's had to go through a lot of things in order to accomplish, you know, one of their greatest feats.
0: Mm-hmm. It does seem like the setbacks. Are so much more informative to growth and improvement in, a, in a, a deeper sense than than the accomplishments. It's it's interesting what you said just a little earlier about not being in favor of awards for all, and I think that's something that you probably notice in schools, and and we certainly do. It's interesting the fact that all kids would often get an award for participation. Do you have more thoughts about that? I mean, I I do see the benefit of giving.
1: Yeah, there, there's a certain age you can go to, you know, like, you know, you don't tell a two-year-old, oh, you failed. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. But at some point, you, it's all in how you word it to them, you know, and it's all you have to go through the hard times, you know, like, then you get into this entitled career where you feel like you should be given this because you've been given things your whole life. And various stories that I share in my book where people had to learn to lose numerous times again and again and again. You know, I had more failures than I had successes. And that's life. That's what we go through. We have to understand these defeats in order to have accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And you really do have to have those lessons that you learn, not by just someone saying, okay, you know, you get a trophy just because you're there. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think there's something to say, you know, something to be said about showing up, you know, like that that's half the battle. An accomplishment needs to be earned internally in order to feel that, you know, it's something that you can be proud of.
0: We lived for a year in Switzerland. And in our time there, we experienced an approach to competition that was much different than our experience from a school perspective with our children, which was much different than our experience in the US, in which competition was just part of a day in the life. And there was a spirit of competition that actually we really warmed up to whereas in the united states i think it was it was a little bit more soft competition i sort of think a combination of both is approach that you get the rewards of really having incentives and and learning how to fail and lose and you know pick yourself up but also have sort of the encouragement of yes the effort is is huge part of it
1: You know, a lot of times in the U.S., I think, you know, like with my spinal injury, there were so many people said, you know, like, what did you do to come back from that? What was the surgery you had? What was the doctor you saw? And yes, they were all helpful in in order for me to come back. But it all came down to what I was willing to put in. You know, I worked harder than anyone could imagine in order to come back from this injury. It wasn't something that was handed to me. And there's no quick fix in life. You know, if you want to accomplish something, you put in the hard
0: work. On that note, this is a great segue. Tell us about your Super Bowls.
1: When I had my injury, there was a quote that I found by General George S. Patton that says, success is how high you bounce after you hit rock bottom. And in that moment, I realized, you know, you if you're soft and you don't have that turtle shell, then it's you're going to fall to mush when you hit the bottom. There are people that accomplish great things even in the face of adversity, and it's because they're ready to bounce. They're ready to bounce back like that Super Bowl. And so I would take a Super Bowl with me every day. I'd go to the gym every time I would be in a challenging situation every time that my back hurt or I didn't know if I could accomplish something. And I'd bounce the Super Bowl and remind myself that I wasn't going to be able to rebound unless I stayed strong, unless I had that turtle shell. And it was the visual reminder I needed in order to come back from that injury. And, you know, it's something I still use today and remind my kids that yes, it's okay to have setbacks, but you have to be ready and willing to have that hard shell in order to bounce back.
0: So we should all have super balls in our house.
1: <laughs> That's why I hand them out at speeches and people tell me that you know, years later, they still have their Super Bowl at their desk and they bounce it and remind themselves that, you know, success is how high you bounce after you hit rock bottom.
0: Yeah. And so you're sort of throwing it down as yep. with the force of a failure <laughs> or a bad day or whatever it is. And, and then it comes back up. And that's really what it's all about.
1: And sometimes you have to go down with force. You know, it's something that you even have to throw yourself in that direction in order to rebound back up.
0: Hmm. That's a really neat metaphor. Nikki, do you have any book recommendations or anything you're reading these days?
1: Well, there's a a book I love called Message to Garcia, and it's by Albert Hubbard. And it's really a great writing on success. And it's it's a very short read, but it's got so many great little uh, pieces of advice that really share an understanding of, of, you know, how you can find success. And it's, you know, sometimes it's almost like a quote, like if you can read something short towards success that, you know, and it's a reason in my book that I wanted to share all these short stories that sometimes when you're going through a whole book, it's, it's hard and it's, it becomes overwhelming. But if you can read little pieces, it's, it's, it's like that quote, you know, you get one quote and you feel inspired
0: mm-hmm.
1: by some of these bite sized nuggets, like this, this book, A Message to Garcia. It's something that by reading it, you can have that motivation without feeling overwhelmed.
0: Hmm. And it's interesting you say that because one of the other coaching takeaways that I didn't bring up to talk more about that you have is to tackle the baby steps and not the giant steps right away to pace yourself. So it's right. similar to that, right? It's sort of understanding our human capacity to ingest really powerful things is, is pretty small.
1: It's hard. You become overwhelmed. You know, if you're you're someone who needs to lose a hundred pounds, if you think of losing a hundred pounds, it's not gonna happen. But if you think of, you know what, I'm gonna lose one pound today, you think, you know, I can do that. And you set it on each day that you're going to try to do that and it becomes bearable, becomes something that we think we can handle. And you wrap your mind around, you know, those small steps, the small accomplishments, and it can lead to something much greater.
0: Mm. What are you involved in now during this COVID period?
1: I'm actually um, reinventing my speaking because the speaking world has come to a screeching halt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I'm coming up with different programs that I can share with companies so that they can take those bite-sized nuggets and be able to find the inspiration, become more productive, bring more happiness and a, a greater morale, especially this time when so many people need it. I take this opportunity not as an enormous setback. You know, I, I could easily sit there and say my career, i am it's been a wash because people can't go to meetings at all. Instead, I find a way you have to innovate.
0: Nikki, I know that you're pressed with time and it's been an honor to receive a glimpse into your life and your perspective. Can you tell us a little bit more about how listeners can find out more about you and your motivational speaking?
1: Uh, they can go to my website, which is www.nickystone.com, N I K K I S T O N E.com. On the site, they have, you can order the book When Turtles Fly if they wanted autographed or personalized for anyone. I do have a channel on YouTube. They can look up Nicky Stone Olympian and they'll find, you know, different videos that I have listed on there. And there are a number of different links that you can find through my website.
0: Thank you so much, Nikki. Have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: Thank you. It's been an honor talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. My hope is that you leave this conversation with a sense of curiosity and empowerment to hold on to what is important and let go to what weighs you down. Stare fear in the face. If you like this episode of the When Women Fly podcast, be sure to share and subscribe and let us know what you think. We love feedback. Be brave, be bold, and fly. See you next time.